Test Scotland podcast. I'm Henry Hepburn, uh, news editor at Test Scotland. This is my first podcast under lockdown conditions, first podcast using Zoom, so we'll see how we get on. Um, my guest today is Ollie Bray, who's director of Global Program, the Global Program team at the Lego Foundation, and uh, is joining us from Scotland today. He's based in Denmark normally. Uh, welcome, Ollie. Uh, I feel like the, the first question I need to ask everyone just now is, how are you? And it's a genuine, how are you? Not just a sort of platitude, because uh, it's an unusual situation for us all, to say the least. So how are you getting on with it? Yeah, good. Well, well first of all, thanks, Henry. And thanks for asking me to, um, to be, to be part, part, part of this. Yeah, I mean, on a, on a very personal level, like, I, I feel absolutely fine. I feel very lucky that we're um, I'm in Scotland at the moment. I would have also felt very lucky if I was in Denmark. I think both countries have handled the whole situation um, very, very well. Um, I just kind of have that overwhelming, overwhelming feeling at the moment of everything is different, but it's the same, if that, make, yeah. if that makes sense. I think a lot yeah. of people are struggling with that. And um, and I think the other thing that a lot of people are struggling with, including children, and maybe we'll get a chance to get onto that later, is, of course, that fear of the unknown around, you know, when we might move back to what we've had in the past, to where we are now, to some kind of to some kind of normality. But But no, on a very personal level, I'm I'm fit, healthy, uh, and, and, and fine, and, and uh, thankful for being in the Highlands. Yeah, well, you're, and you're back in your old stamping ground near Canusi, I think, and uh, I think you've been you've been in quite a lot of contact with your former colleagues. So how, you've you've got a pretty good perspective to tell us. How do you think teachers and other educators are responding to this crisis? So, so I think so. I think it's really interesting. Like, um, I mean, as you as you correctly said, I was I was head teacher at Canusi High School, which is just kind of six miles away from the from the road now, and I'm still. Uh, you know, I'm still very, very good friends with the with the head teacher there, Ian, Ian Adamson, and Ian worked with me as a as a deputy head for, for six years while I was at the, while I was at the school. And it's interesting to to kind of compare schools like Canusi, I suppose, um, and another school that I'm very involved in, which is the International School of Billund, where I'm where I'm chair of the chair of the school board. Um, and the reason that I mention those two is because I've got an inside perspective, I guess of I guess of both of them. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting about those two schools is, of course. Denmark is about three weeks ahead of the lockdown conditions mm-hmm. compared, to, compared to the UK. Indeed, um, just at the end of last week, we started to send some of the first children back to the International School of Billund, and we've had to adapt our practice you know, as, a, as, a, as a result of that. Um, and there have been, I guess, a couple of interesting things that have come from that. So, uh, so we've obviously been able to share the insight from the International School of Billund. Um, we've actually been really publicly kind of like pushing that out. We made a commitment right from the start that everything that we did within ISB, we would share with everything else, um, our successes, but also our failures so that people could build on that and, um, and, we could, and we could share that. But of course, we've also been able to share some of these ideas with Canusi and the school down the, the road as well. Um, I mean, the other you know, great thing about Canusi is not only is it, is it well-led and it's got a very committed staff team, but for a very, very long time, we have been 100% committed to um, not just digital learning and teaching, um, um, including robust procedures for things like snow days. You know, I remember when I was in, we had one year where we had seven snow days. Now, that's very yeah. different to the current situation, but it means that we're a bit more resilient as a school community to those types of procedures. But we also had a real focus at community, and that goes on, around what we might call um, employability or modern employability skills. And I remember one of the things that we used to do there or one of the things that we introduced when I was there, which continues now, is getting the kids to work virtually in teams with teachers. And actually, as part of that work, we actually reinvented group work at the time. Normally, you would go into a class and there would be children sat around a table and say it's four children. And those four children would be working together as a group. And we actually challenged it, starting in the science department. We challenged that model around these employability skills or 21st century employability skills. So there might have been four children sat around the table 
but each of those children were working with a different child in a different group. You know, and they're using like collaborative documents, they're using things like instant messaging. And I think that, that things like that that we actually built into the curriculum at the time has, has certainly put Kinguski into very, very good stead in terms of making, making, making that work. So there's some built-in resilience there to this current situation that, in, in the way that you've done things or that you did things at the school over a period of years. Yeah, I think I think so. And I mean, that's what we're kind of aiming aiming towards. I mean, you know, we've, we've known each other for a long time and I've always been very much about how do you reimagine learning and how you know, mm. what, what yeah. learning and teaching, you know, look like to make that work. And particularly, you know, in rural communities, I've always imagined a time where particularly older children might not come into school. They might go to local hubs and, and, the, and yeah. these sorts of we were we were kind of working towards that. Can you see in the, in the time we never quite got there? But it's it's dead interesting in this current situation of how education seems to have fast forwarded kind of kind of ten years. Um, I suppose there was just one one last point to make on that is that um, one one of the things that I think is really really important. You know, as as schools do start to go back, obviously we don't know when that will be yet. But I think it's really important at the moment that that school leadership teams start to reimagine. You know what their curriculum might be and what their curriculum might look like. You know, so so building in this digital resilience, you know, and these digital group work activities, you know, or you know, or, or building in, you know, education specifically around, you know, dealing with situations like a pandemic or local resilience is a really, really important part of how how schools should be adjusting. Certainly, their BGE, you know, to build to, to, to build up to that. Like it, like it cannot be um, like when when we go back that you learn about the Vikings in February and the Romans in March. Right? Yeah. We need we need. To, we need, to, we need to strip some of that stuff out and put some of this kind of more practical stuff in to help build up these resilience skills. And there's quite a lot of future gazing on just now. And I think it's probably a little bit dangerous because it's such a period of flux and there's so much uncertainty around. But uh, there seem to be two camps, one which says that things will pretty much go back to normal and another which says there could be some really, this could be the catalyst for some really radical change in education. Maybe no more exams, for example. Um, what's your take on all that? So um, I, I think with like I think with education, ed education is 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 normally not very good at radical change, <laughs> and, and also I think that um, and also I think that maybe radical change is not exactly what we need, not what what we need, right? Um, but I do think that there, you know, if, if you know, if you could use the words, you know, what are the positives that have come out of this situation? Then there, there have been some things that have come out of this situation where. Um, you know, we have been able to gain, generate efficiencies. We've been able to do meetings better, you know, for, for example. Um, arg arguably, some children are more engaged with their learning than ever before because, because teachers are able to set, you know, meaningful tasks. Um, it's highly personalized, you know, on, on a lot of time. Now, I know that's not the same for all children. There are, there are some children and indeed parents and teachers that are really struggling, you know, with, with, with this situation. But I don't, I don't necessarily think there'll be radical change. What I, what I do think, of course, um, is, that, is that things will look very, very different, particularly in this in this in this buffer zone and i mean at work at work with my team we call it the fuzzy space you know and, and it's this kind of space between um you know when 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 society shut down it shut down in a heartbeat when 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 society starts back up it's not going to start back up in a heartbeat but i think there's a perception particularly with children that it will because all children have ever known is what it was like before and what it's like now and that fuzzy space period, that's where education needs to look really, really different because one of the things that we're 100% going to have to do there is we're going to have to put a lot more support in to, to, mm. to, to kids. And, and in particular, we need to use that opportunity of the fuzzy space to put the face-to-face -face support in there um, if, it, if it's appropriate as well. And, uh, you know, I, I, within my kind of wider work at the Lego Foundation, we're involved in a lot of policy work and advice to education ministries. You know, we do a lot of, lot of policy tracking and it's interesting you know, I mentioned Denmark and, and Scotland like, like uh, earlier around things, but um, I work closely with a colleague, for example, in Singapore. You know, when Singapore has gone into lockdown, it's been out of lockdown 
and it's just gone down into lockdown again. You know, yeah, and um, yeah. and these are you know these, these are kind of quite um, quite interesting you know in, interesting things to kind of learn from um, you know a, a, around that because chances are that Scotland will you know have another another blip like this, and you need to be prepared for that in terms of making it make, making it work. Yeah, I mean, what I mean, you mentioned the impact on children there, and like you say, there's going to be so much uncertainty over the. Uh, the coming months. I mean, how do how do you see this whole situation having an impact on students and schools, and how they're going to cope? Um, what, will, what will their resilience be like in, in the face of everything that's that's happening now and is coming up ahead? I mean, it's tricky to know, isn't it? And like, mm. I mean, it's, it's really tricky to know. And, and obviously, you know, as you, as you know um, mm. from all of the work that you've done, is that is that children, adults, families react in in mm. very very different way. I mean, ways. I mean, I if I put a global perspective on this. Um, I think we're about to completely redefine resilience in, in, many, in many like if, 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 for example, like at the Lego Foundation, we do a lot of work, you know, in the humanitarian sector. Um, children in the humanitarian sector are incredibly resilient, you know, mm. and, and COVID-19 will have a big impact on them. But these are incredibly resilient children. Mm. You know, you know if, if you compare that to um, a middle class family in the United States of America that's being brought up in a tower block from this time, mm. this is a family and children that are incredibly not resilient as well. Mm. So it's actually going to actually about to redefine what what resilience looks like you know in 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 in, in these ways um i think though just to come back and maybe to put the put the scottish context on it is it, it is really about i guess you know support supporting kids um and it and it's got to be about supporting kids firstly from the well-being you know point point of view and, and again that's where schools like can you see and the international school of Ireland have got that right you know there was there were a lot of schools that responded to the distance learning crisis which is a i think is a, an appropriate way to describe it by by just by just trying to digitize learning and teaching you know and for, and forgetting that of course that schools are really about three pillars learning teaching and assessment well-being but also that kind of social interaction as well and the, and the schools that will be the most successful coming out of this other end will be the ones that put well-being right at the heart of what they were doing have tried to reinvent what we mean by social interaction in terms of making making that work for so for example by simulating break times lunch times those secret spaces that kids can go to like within schools and then have had a secondary focus on um, you know, on learning, teaching, and assessment, with a, with a reimagined curriculum to kind of make that work. And can I ask you about a couple of things you've been involved in recently? Um, one of which is give COVID the boot. Can you, for someone who has no idea what that is, can you explain very quickly what it is and give us a couple of examples of someone who's really, you know, run with it? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so I'll give you give you give you a few examples. So, so the idea came around. It's a, a good good friend of mine, Lorna Care. She works for Edu Education Education Scotland, and um, and and we've been uh, chatting around this kind of idea, really, about how could we uh, how could we unite people a little bit more. And originally, we were kind of thinking hill walking clubs. Now, as it as it as it, as it turns out, that there are lots of people that have wanted to get involved in this. And the, and the simple idea was is that you would um, it was about being together but apart, you know, and staying at home to protect the NHS. All of the normal key messages that we got here. And the idea behind it was is that you would get a hiking boot or a shoe or a sandal or a flipper. It didn't really matter. And you would take it and you would throw it off the screen yeah. and then you would quickly edit the video so that somebody else would catch the object coming in and they would throw it up and somebody would catch it coming down, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it just kind of like took off like wildfire, like wildfire. As it's taken off so much, it's almost, it's like a full-time job keeping on top of managing it. Yeah, how many views are you up to now? Well, we're over a million views. We're going to stick right. out a bit of a release that today, like across all channels. And that's, yeah. and that's over 100 videos that have been produced now. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there have been some... I mean, there have been some amazing ones. Like there have been some ones from people that we obviously know that I think have probably thought we're doing us, you know, a, a bit of a favour. And then, but those special ones are are really from complete strangers. I mean, we've had 
We've had videos from um, Project Zero at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, the Pedal um, Pedal Centre, you know, in, in Cambridge that researchers play, the Teacher Training Institute at the University of Johannesburg. They 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 put one up. Um, we've had about uh, fifteen mountain and lowland rescue teams, you know, from across the UK, the, the UK that, that have done that have done it. Uh, we had a dentist surgery in Largs that just kind of got into the idea that did it as well. But the really nice ones that we're seeing now is we're realizing what an impact this is making for classrooms and schools. Um, there was a great one that was put up yesterday from Stirlingshire and it had 86 people in it, 86 children in it and their teacher and a Tyrannosaurus Rex. So that's the ones that I counted. <laughs> and I mean, the video went on for about six minutes. It's the longest one we've had with so many people in it. But but for me, Henry, it's when you read the comments, you know, underneath, you know, when people have, you know, for, because for a, for a five second clip when they're throwing something, of course, the outtakes, the bloopers, these are really, really, yeah. really funny. It's yeah. a great opportunity to, as I say, bring people together, mm -hmm. you know, you know, apart. So, um, so we'll keep we'll keep with that, at the, you know, at, at the moment. But it's been a great a great thing to do and a great thing to be part of. And you have quite quite a few schools have got involved, haven't they? Yeah, lots of schools, and, and what um, I mean, what a number of schools are doing is, um, you know, is they've is is there's a, been a provocation from a teacher, you know, so there's maybe mm -hmm. boot throws, and then they're just inviting kids to upload a clip, and there's a there's a deadline uh, for them mm -hmm. to do it, and um, and the other people that have been incredibly supportive of the, of the Duke of Edinburgh Award, they've they actually in, officially endorsed it and made it an official staff challenge for all of their staff across the UK. So we've had videos from DV Wales, DV London, DV Southwest, and again, just a great way to bring expedition groups and of course we normally have been out on the hill or on the river you know at this, at this time of year so it's so a good team building activity as well to bring, bring people together and uh, not not that long ago you wrote a piece for us um about a week or so ago where you said that in the time of covid19 professional learning is more important than ever um can you unpack that a little bit i mean some people might intuitively think well i'm doing so much firefighting just now how can i think about professional learning so what's how, how would you yeah no absolutely explain that so and I think it's like a fair point for people to kind of to kind of kind of think that. I mean, so um, but then I think if you read if you read the article, really what I was trying to trying to get at there is that first of all, professional learning is not going to a conference, you know, or a mm -hmm. professional learning is is about upskilling and sharing practice, but in a in a thoughtful way. Um, and I think that bit's really really important because there's a lot of people that say they do professional learning from going to a course or a conference, but mm -hmm. it's not particularly thoughtful. They just want to do it. It's some, it's something it's something to do. Um, so in, in the article, I was really trying to, to argue, I guess, three things. So the first thing that I was trying to argue is that at this time where the internet is awash with the latest, greatest idea, you know, to help improve your classroom practice online or the latest, greatest video tutorial about how to use Microsoft Teams or Google, Google Hangouts. And you said a lot of it's quite superficial as well. I, I think so. A lot of it is actually about the tool, like rather than actually about the pedagogy and the practice behind it. So I think that one of the most sensible things that we could be doing at the moment is, you know, trying to work with teachers around a, like a simple framework. And I suggest one in the article around kind of kind of five points where where teachers can look at a digital, not a di not even a digital resource, an experience that they're going to work with with their children to to get some kind of learning outcome, obviously linked to the curriculum. But also more as, as importantly during this time to develop, you know, some type of holistic skills, you know, particularly that social emotional intelligence, you know, or that creativity where we've got that time and space at the moment to be able to do that. You know, and in, and in the article, I suggest that any kind of experience, you know, it should be it should be meaningful. So actually, why are we doing this at the moment? You know, we've seen some we've seen some great schools reimagine their curriculum actually around COVID-19. And that's got meaning for kids at, at, at the moment to go back to my Vikings example. I'm not saying the Vikings aren't important, but but actually, how do we anchor this like in the in what's going on or the local environment? Um, 
I think that it's really, really important that these activities are socially interactive and we can maybe come back and talk about group work and teamwork in a second because I do think that's a real challenge, you know, at, at the moment. The, the activities, oh, I'm, a, you know, I'm a constructivist learner. I've always had been that acti- activities are, you know, iterative. They, they, they build on each other, like over, over, over a period of time. That doesn't necessarily mean physically building things. It also means building knowledge and developing, um, you know, developing, developing the skills as, as well. Um, and that the activities, um, you know, are, are joyful. And, and, and what I mean by that is I don't mean fun. Seymour Papert, you know, one of the one of the professors, the original professor at the MIT Media Lab, who I read all of his seminal work, who really inspired me as an educator, he uses the term hard fun. You know, and he, and he, mm-hmm. often, describes, he often describes, well, if you run a marathon, you know, that's not fun. But when you get to the end, there's this kind of massive feeling of joy, which kind of overwhel- overwhelms you. And that's what and that's what we want kids to have, you know, at the end of these learning experiences. I, I worry at the moment that, and this is all done with good intention, that we've got children that are, that are learning online and, and it's not particularly joyful. It's just, it's just kind of, it's just a bit flat, really. So how yeah. do we actually work with kids to be able to do that? And then the, the second part, I guess, that I was arguing in the, in the article is that how do we upskill teachers in some of these more active pedagogies online? Um, and I, I really like uh, a quote called Cliff Dennett by, by a guy called Cliff Dennett, who, who was a keynote speaker at a Scottish international summer school like a number of years ago. And he always said, the solution is in the problem. And that really resonated with me. And, um, and, and what I mean by that is, is that there are many, many teachers out there at the moment that are doing just a fantastic job, but maybe they don't know what good, very good, excellent distance learning looks like. And perhaps one of the reasons they don't know that is because they've never been a student in that distance learning in, in mm-hmm. environment. So actually, if, 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 the, if the problem is distance learning, maybe the solution is distance learning as well. So if we can actually encourage teachers to create a little bit of time and space to participate in a distance learning course themselves, which is high quality, not only would they upskill themselves in some of these active pedagogies, which can be done online, but also they're starting to experience what good, very good or excellent distance learning looks like, and they can apply that to their pedagogy as well. And I suggest three, three, uh, you know, three courses within the, the piece that I wrote for you. So, so yeah, like you say, people, a lot of people have been thrown into this very quickly, this world of distance learning. So what would you say are one, of, one or two of the most common mistakes with distance learning? What is, a, you know, what is an absolute requirement of, of good distance learning? Yeah, well, I don't, it's, 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 it's tricky to actually pull it down to a number of lists. We're actually, we're actually working on a, a big piece to this at the moment within the Lego Foundation to kind of unpick it because um, the, the, the main thing I, I think is it's about variety. Like children, children like variety. I mean, there's kind of these arguments going on at the moment about whether something should be pre-recorded and the kids should watch it, you know, and, you know, or whether it, or whether, or whether it should be live. live. And, and actually the, the truth of it is, is there's a 100% place for both. And some of that depends on the technology itself. Like in a, you know, in a low bandwidth area, and we do have challenges at the moment with bandwidth. Not, it's not that people haven't got broadband, but when you're suddenly you know, living in an estate like I live in here, and you've got 50 kids suddenly online all at the same time trying to watch the same YouTube video, you know, we have a problem there with, you know, we have a problem there with bandwidth resilience. You know, and it's interesting that how some of the local communities have started to work around that, you know, and, and have been quite thoughtful around you know, trying to make sure they're not downloading the Lord of the Rings trilogy at nine o'clock in the morning when the kids are coming online and, th- and things like this. Um, you know, you know, but so, so that might be, there might be technical reasons for doing that. But the other thing that, that's coming out really anecdotally, um, and I think that this is important, and it's one of the reasons why, why, like why I've set this up today. Like we're, like we're using Zoom. I could put one of those virtual backgrounds on there. I could have a Lego Foundation logo or whatever it's on there. But it just doesn't feel very human. And, and some of the, 
most amazing moments that I've seen online in the last few weeks has been where there's been a teacher engaging with their class. It might be a conversation. It might be to do with a little outcome. And the dog jumps on the computer screen or the child comes in and it sits on the lap or they're eating their lunch or they're drinking, you know, a, a cup of coffee. And there's something yeah. for me that feels really human about that and very raw. And of course, what that does is it wraps this giant blanket around these kids, like particularly young children that are, that are in there to make, make, to, to make that work. So, so I would say that if we're going to try and do one thing with distance learning, yes, the learning bit is important, but the well-being is important as well. Everything that we do, you teacher need to be wrapping that giant blanket around the class. It doesn't matter whether those kids are five years old or whether those kids are 18 years old. At, at the moment, they're looking for support and they're looking for support from trusted adults. And we know very, very well that in some households, unfortunately, those trusted adults are not always the family unit, so it's the parents that are important. I tell you to, to think to your career trajectory, which has been really, really interesting, and I wondered if you could, there was a lot of interest at late in 2018 when you moved from Canusi to, I think your job title at the time was uh, Global Director of Play for the LEGO Foundation. So um, there was a lot of interest in that. Can you tell us very, uh, very quickly where, you know, what was your, where did you start your career? What took you to, um, uh, you ended up at KUC for five years, I think, as well, and then onto the LIGO Foundation. So it's a really fascinating career trajectory. I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, yeah. where that, you know, where you started and where you got, got to that okay. point. So I actually, uh, I, I was a geography teacher, I think you know that. I mean, I, yeah. I started doing a, doing a geography degree at the University of Plymouth on the south of England. And then my my first job when I, when, I, when I left there was working for was working for the Scottish Sports Council, which of course is now called Sports Scotland, mm -hmm. up here near Aviemore at, at Glenmore Lodge. And I did their training instructor scheme there, and it was when I was doing that scheme that, and that's really where I, you know, developed my my, my love for the outdoors. Well, not just not my love for the outdoors, but my qualifications mm -hmm. in the outdoors. When I've always been very committed to both technology and outdoor experiences. And um, and then it was kind of at that time, having worked in the outdoors for a few years, that I decided to be a teacher. I trained at, at Murray House in geography. My one of my student placements was at Knox Academy in, in Haddington in East Lothian, and I uh, ended up getting a, a job there. Like once I finished my PGDE, um, I was very very lucky to work with a with a really really good head of department there, and um, he introduced me to writing things like geography textbooks, things that I never thought that I would do. He was he was always very very encouraging to make that work, and I and I ended up I guess really with a with an with an early promotion, and it was one of these promotions in the. Uh, in the, in the early days of CFE, where, where, where job titles were just being made up. And I was the principal teacher of citizenship and values at the time. But that yeah. got, me interested in, um, got me interested in international education and all, of the, and all of these things. And eventually, I moved to Dunbar as head of geography and then a deputy head at Musselburgh Grammar School. And, and it was kind of at that time that I was developing this real, this real love of technology and computer games in the classroom and, and how both the outdoors and these kind of digital experiences could provide really rich context for learning. And it was all about that. For, for, for me um, and um, I ended up at Learning and Teaching Scotland as National Advisor for Emerging Technologies and that then included a little secondment to Scottish Government where I was working on technologies for learning strategy and supporting um, a Minister of Education at the time, Mike Russell, when, when, he, when he was Minister and then back to then Education Scotland as it, as it, as it, as it became and then, and then one day it was kind of like, oh well maybe it's either time to like stay at Education Scotland or go back to East Lothian or to, or to do something else and um, and yeah, the job the, the job came up up here and it was like, well, I really, really have got a massive network of people that I know through, uh, you know, through my time at LCS and my time at Education Scotland, plus lots of bits of kind of consultancy and things that I've been involved in in all of these networks. And I kind of was very, very committed to 
putting all of those contacts and all of that kind of knowledge like it like into a school and that's really where the the kind of can you see uh the can you see a story story you know came came from from there and um and i'm very very glad that i, that I did that i think it i think it was some of the most exhausting uh rewarding professional time that i spent you know the, the five five and a half years at, at the high school um but the school you, you know was in was in an interesting place when i arrived i i i, I would like to think that it's it was in a it's in a very very good place when I left in terms of attainment and lots of other things going on and that's partly because we had a, a fantastic staff team there and it's in a great place now you know because it's uh, we did a lot of work around kind of succession planning and the staff team and, and Ian obviously taking over has done an ama- amazing job and then yeah I was thinking about well what next and it and um, and it wasn't that I was unhappy can you see and uh, but I was sort of thinking well you know that's that that's coming up for six years seven eight years I think is kind of the life of a head teacher anyway like just in terms of sustaining that pace like uh, certainly the way that the way that I work anyway and uh, and there were a few things that came up in, in, including this very very interesting offer from the Lego Foundation where again now I get to uh, to use some of that experience previously from the classroom from policy and of course now that school leadership bit in, in there um, you know working with systems and in different projects projects around the world. So, so in a nutshell, what does your job involve now? It involves three, so three things. So, it's, so nothing. There's nothing in a nutshell. So, if, <laughs> I, uh, I, so when I arrived, I was asked to develop an initiative with a, which is a big program within the foundation, which is called Tech and Play, um, and that's all of our work within the Lego Foundation around creative coding, such as the use of the Scratch programming language, um, robotics, um, uh, sometimes including Lego robotics, sometimes not, using local materials as well, and also and also making and tinkering and. Um, and what we're doing with that project is we're actually out to tender at the moment because we're going to be bringing these experiences into five countries around the world into form into formal curriculum. And I can't share which the countries are yet, but on the first of September we'll kind of be you know an- announcing that. But to put to give you to give you an idea of the of the of the, of the scale of it, that's a twenty five million dollar project you know that that will, that will go on. And as part of that work, you know, at that kind of systems level, we've also put in there a, a research partner. That will work across all five, all five, all five geographies. Because what we really want to do is make a significant contribution to the field here about how some of these hands-on, playful experiences can not just develop learning outcomes, but also develop skills, you know, in, in young people. And I'm very lucky as part of that to work with um, my friends at Lifelong Kindergarten at the MIT Media Lab, the Scratch Foundation, Exploratorium in San Francisco, and also Tufts University, who are our specialist partners as part of that. And the second project that we work on is um, something which is called Playful Schools, which again builds on our work on the International School of Billund. And we have a we work very closely with Project Zero at the Harvard Graduate School of Education there around what we call the pedagogy of play. And this comes from the concept that play is universal, but it's also highly culturally relevant as well. And if we want to get more kind of active pedagogies into in, into schools, people need to understand what this look what this what this looks like. If they can imagine what good looks like, they can plan for good to, to do that. Um, and then. That some of these bits of work are, are slightly stalled at the moment because as of three weeks ago, the Lego Foundations had a response to COVID nineteen, um, and we've got five new work streams because of that. And and it's a, a great privilege, although slightly terrifying, that I've picked up uh, the the the, the COVID nineteen our COVID nineteen response to distance learning and distance education. So so my my immediate team, you know, grew from grew from four to about seventeen o- overnight, um, and we're currently all spread out around the world, and we're 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 working on. On a piece um, which is around advice to kind of schools and school leaders at the moment, which we hope to get out in the next in the next week or so. But then, um, what what we're what we're working on is we're very much focused on what's next. So everybody is all, we're already preparing the team into the mindset of what's happening in three months' time, four months' time, five months' time, six months' time. 
because there's a lot of firefighting going on at the moment. There's a lot of people mm-hmm. dealing with earthquakes, but there's not a lot of people that are giving them themselves the space to 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 to, to look ahead. So we're developing um, as part of that more future facing look. We're looking at a number of tools there, a number of resources, training resources for, for teachers as well. And of course, you know, we don't just work in high income settings. We're also look, looking at you know what some of our response will be, you know, particularly in Eastern Africa where where you know, where, where things are just starting. So, so it's, it's interesting. It's interesting, busy work. Yeah. And, and you'd imagine it's an interesting work environment in many ways. Physically, I guess, I'm trying to picture what uh, your working environment is like. Um, is there lots of Lego around? Is there, you know, is it, what's, what sort of space is it? Uh, we're, we're actually very lucky. So we're in the, we're actually in the new Lego campus, which is just opened in, in, in Billund. We were one of the first teams to kind of move in there, like into the Lego Foundation. So, um, so yeah, there is, I mean, there is obviously a lot of Lego around, a lot of Lego models around and those sorts of things. But I think the most, the special part of it is, is how they've really thought about the space for collaborative working. So um, on, on each, we, you know, we, we sit within a neighbourhood. There are different areas in the neighbourhood that are for different things. So you kind of move around depending on what you want to do or you can book out a project space if you're working with a team. Um, and then every single room, like on each, on each of the floors, has got a different purpose. So... There's a room, for example, where there's no furniture and you can write on every single wall, you know, or there's a there's a room where you can go in and it's just a stand up desk. You know, or there's a room that you can go in and you've got four big screens so that you can simultaneously on that. So what's quite interesting about it is they don't tell you what's in each of the rooms. So the longer that we've been in campus, we've started to figure out what rooms are good for, for different things. So there's a you know, you don't you don't want to. You don't want a big meeting if you go in with it and there are just two armchairs there and a kind of table a table lamp. But that's pretty good for a, you know for an informal chat and a coffee and a bit of a start session with, with with other people. So it's a very, very well thought out creative space and uh, and I, and and that that suits uh, you know some of the very talented people that I that, that I work with there. Uh, I mentioned uh, I was speaking to a colleague of mine who's got a couple of young kids. Uh, one or possibly both of them are big Lego fans and they instant and. That was mentioned to them, and they instantly had a couple of questions that they'd, they'd like answered. <laughs> one of which yeah, yeah. is what? One of which is what's the coolest thing about your job, or the coolest thing you've done? That'd be uh, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the cool. There's no doubt about it. In my mind, the, I mean, the, cool, the coolest thing about my job is the people that you is the people that you work with. I mean, they're just they're just incredibly clever, you know, creative, you know, creative people. It's um, like when I when I first joined the Lego Foundation. People saying like, "How are you getting on?" And I was like, "Oh, the people here—they're just—they're just so clever. Like everybody speaks about six languages, you know, and everybody's got a PhD and all these things." And they said, "What do you bring to the team?" It's like, "Well, I'm an English speaker." <laughs> that's about. You know, that's about. <laughs> but no, I'm joking aside. But they, uh, yeah, it, it, for me, it's the it's the people that it's the people that do that. I think, and I think one of the one of the coolest things that that I've done is um, Mitch Resnick, who's the Lego puppet professor of play, who's, who's a great friend of mine historically, and I work very very closely with him now at, at, at the Media Lab. Um, he wrote a book called Lifelong Kindergarten, um, Project Peers, Passions and Passion and Play. And um, and it's been successful. But I helped him organize the Danish book launch for that. And it was at the International School of Berlin and it felt very, very special. And he did a talk and then we did a question and answer session. Um, but Kel Kirk Christensen, who is the third generation Lego family owner, because, of course, Lego is a still a family owned company. You know, it's not on the stock exchange or anything like that. Kel came along and, um, you know, he, and he did the introduction and he stayed all, and, he, and he stayed all evening. And of course, Kel and Seymour Papert and Mitch Resnick, they go back a, an awful, an awful, an, an awful long way. So, the, the the family that own the Lego Group are, are are incredibly special in terms of their values and everything from mm. the company. Really, you know, really comes from them. So, just having, having that opportunity to to work with Kel and to work with with Mitch in that environment felt very, 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 very special to me. The second question from our young interviewers was. Um, 
we love Lego, but can you ask why you use it? Take uh, why you're, we have to spend so much of our pocket money to get it? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's another it's a it's another it's another good question, and and it's um yeah, and it's a, it's a tricky you know it's probably a tricky one to answer, but it but it's really to do with the quality of the product. That's mm. what it, that's what it comes down to. I mean, and I mean I see I mean I see that like we, we I do a lot of work at the moment in in well not at the moment because I'm not travelling anywhere, but in in South Africa and um mm. and in some of the schools that we go into yeah. in South Africa there are there are Lego Duplo bricks, some some of which the Lego Foundation have provided, and some of which the, the school have bought, but um. Occasionally, you get in there, you get counterfeit products that have come in, come in there as well, and it, and it always surprises me that you know when you look at a, when you look at a Lego Duplo brick, it's just tough. You know, it's it's you know it's not got sharp edges. I can stand on that; that's not going to break. And then when you look in the the box of these other things, and you've got bits that are broken and, and bits have come off as well. So it's really to do with the the quality of the product and how that works, which is what which is what drives up the the the, the expense of it. And obviously, play was central to to your job, absolutely central to your job when you you started in late in two thousand eighteen. The idea of play based learning is something that inspires a lot of passion, but it also maybe inspires some scorn as well. So, how do you uh, persuade a, a skeptic about the value of play based learning, and, and maybe are there some misconceptions about what that actually is? Oh, 100%. And it's, a, and it's a great question. So, I mean, I think that play-based education is very accepted now in the early years. And, mm-hmm. and I think that most people understand that some of the most successful companies and businesses in the world have got that playful mindset at, at the other end. It's the bit in between that we sometimes struggle, struggle, struggle with. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, I quite often, or we quite often think about those, um, those, those characteristics, the ones that I was mentioning earlier around that, you know, and, and uh, you know, so we think about the you know, play, playful experiences normally are Joyful experiences, they're normal meaningful experiences, they're normally uh, socially interactive, they're normally engaging with the students, and they're normally normally iterative. And and if and if people can buy into that, like the five characteristics of an ex- excellent lesson, then actually it becomes very very easy to say, well, these are these are five characteristics of an excellent lesson, but these are all five characteristics that are associated with play based learning, you know, you know as well. Um, and we actually wrote a report that I was involved in, uh, one of the first things that was involved with the Lego Foundation, which then looks at these five characteristics around evidence-based pedagogies you know so you know and so which, which of these pedagogies are more aligned to like learning through play techniques so things like project-based learning inquiry-based learning you know collaborative learning have all, have all got this kind of playful element to the, to it and of course what we're what we're not trying to say and we never had is it's one thing or the other you know it's you know it's about giving kids a, you know, a rich a rich blend of, of, of all of these things and sometimes play-based approaches are highly appropriate you know and sometimes it's just good for kids to know stuff and that's that's okay that's, that's okay as well i mean if you think about you know, if you think about teaching a kid not to touch the fire, they just, yeah. they just, you don't, you don't want them to experiment and to iterate, iterate on that. You know, it'd be a terrible, terrible thing for that, for that, for that to happen. But, but what we're saying is it shouldn't just be didactic chalk and talk all the time, because that doesn't develop these kind of range of holistic skills, which frankly we need in young people, particularly at these times. That maybe takes us quite nicely into, um, uh, my colleague Emma wrote a piece about uh, can you see hi when you were just coming to the end of your time there and I spoke to her yesterday uh, this was obviously well over a year ago now and I said without going back to the piece what do you remember most because I remember at the time there was lots of really good reaction to that piece lots of interest in it um, and uh, I remembered you know there was you certainly seemed to have vocational education had parity with what you might call the more traditional subjects there was lots of there were lots of interesting, um, you know, vocational opportunities, things like beekeeping. Um, I know you had a home economics teacher who's uh, using game that's been, you know, caught locally, um, rabbits and, and grouse and so on. Um, but, uh, and then there, were, uh, there was a really wide range of qualifications available as well for, for kids. 
And uh, Emma said she was paraphrasing, but she said the thing that really rose to the top of her mind from, you know, from remembering a piece that she'd written about a year and a half ago was um, you were doing really well with your attainment levels. So she'd asked someone, uh, I think it was one of your colleagues, you know, what's, how do you square that, everything that you're offering and rising attainment? She said, and I think your colleague said, well, if you offer kids more opportunities, attainment will rise. Can you explain that, that way of looking at things? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so for, for me, it's always about, for, for me, it's about the curriculum drives attainment. That's how, that, 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 that's, how it, that's how it works. And we're very lucky in Scotland to have a, a really robust like qualification structure. The challenge with the qualification structure is that most people don't understand it. And I mean, mm. and I genuinely mean that, you know, and, and it's complicated, but because it's complicated, it makes it all also highly, 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 highly flexible. So if you're a school and you only offer, say, 20 subjects, uh, which means that a kid can only do, say, geography or history, like within, like within the column, if they don't like geography and history, not only you know, might, might that put them off education you know, around that, but they're probably not going to do very, very well at it. If you're able to expand your range of subjects you know, and create that kind of curriculum flexibility so that children are doing you know, what they want to do, what they want to learn about, which is linked into the positive destinations that they might go on to and those kind of passions and interests, you know, the, the basic theory is, is they're likely to do like, like better than that. So, so at QUC in, in, in 2012, like, like when I arrived, there were in the senior phase, there were 20 subjects on the curriculum. Um, and, you know, that's not different levels of subjects, but there were 20, there were 20 subjects on the curriculum. And, and when I, you know, when I left in, um, in 2018, we had 43 subjects on the curriculum that we ran within the school or people from the college came down and ran to the school. We also had a good vocational offering like with the, with the, college, with the college as well. And we did that by looking for what the gaps were within the curriculum, um, working with staff so that, well, compressing the, the senior phase so that, you know, so it was, it was real, really kind of state, state, stage, not age, looking for gaps in the curriculum for other things that we, could, that we could do and having these really coherent learning pathways where we would sit down with kids halfway kind of through like, S, like S, S3 and we would be talking about their learning journeys. In fact, those learning journeys now start in S2, you know, as kids, as kids do that and they, and they start to them together. Where, where, might, where might they go? Where, where, where do you want to go? Nothing's locked in. There's always the flexibility behind it you know, to make that work. And I think that some of the proudest things that we did at King UC was really unpicking different bits of the curriculum. So we made what you call subject loops in different areas. So PE is like a really good example of it. You've got a lot of kids that do National 5 PE and they do really, really well but they struggle to go to higher PE normally because of literacy rates. So within our curricular offer, then can you see you've got your national four, national five PE or national three PE, and you can go to higher PE but, but at, at SCQF level six, but you could also go to um, exercise and fitness leadership at SCQF level six. So, so what that meant is that if you wanted to, you could be developing your literacy skills and working towards exercise and fitness leadership because there was no written exam at the end of it. It was mainly practical based and written assignments. Or if you had the literacy skills, you could go towards higher PE. And then of course, by the time you got to S6, you could loop back around either to advanced higher because you could exit, you could go both ways, or you could do the other one because it's a different, a different type of learning. So we make these feedback loops. And indeed, the PE curriculum was so successful, we even introduced, um, you know, for, for one year, we had a very it was a big shinty area, a lot, a lot of very fit people. So we actually should, should say maybe just for, sorry to interrupt very very quickly for there may be people out with Scotland listen to this um, yeah. who maybe don't know what Shinty is and and I know I obviously King UC is just about the epicenter of the world for 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 Shinty. I mean, can you uh, how would you how would you sum up what Shinty is? 
it's a good question, and I'll and I'll probably get this wrong, which means the <laughs> people are very happy happy about it because they're very protective about definitions. But it's it's basically like it's like it's Highland hockey would be how yeah. I would how, how I would describe it would be a good way to do it. You can lift the stick higher, and but it's very very popular you know, in the you know in the in the area. And related to the Irish sport of hurling as well, of course, exactly. it's a sort of cousin of that almost. And uh, and for those who don't know much about it, I think it has a reputation for being quite a fierce sport. Quite 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 a fierce sport. Quite, quite fierce. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. So, so actually, we had this this group of uh, you know this, this group of uh, boys and girls coming, up and, they, and we and we spotted two year like two years in advance. They were all they were all basically doing higher PE in S four because again we would we would skip that, and we thought, well, what are they going to do in S six? But because we were planning two years ahead, we then actually worked with um, Inverness College, University Highlands Islands. I was on the, on the on the board at the college at the time, so we actually introduced the full HNC course. You know, for these five for these five youngsters, where they would go to the college once a week, and then we upskilled and trained our PE staff so they could deliver the HNC, the other half of it within within the school. And to get round the kind of requirements of it, you know, what we did is we actually um, worked with the college so that our PE staff became associate lecturers, you know, of the college to make that work as well. So it's certificated through the college; it was all done through the college, but it was like two thirds of it was delivered through our through, through 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 our staff. So all of these things are. You know, are kind of absolutely, absolutely possible with a bit of imagination and understanding how the qualification system works. That would that make you know that intuitively makes absolute sense to offer as diverse a range of qualifications as possible to offer as many routes for your for your students as possible. Is there still a problem when they come out of school at the other end with employers, maybe with universities, even of and just society generally not knowing what certain qualifications are you know you say something like MPA National Progression Awards and you get a blank look sometimes is there still a, a problem with currency when you when people come out of school yeah I, I, I think I think there is I think there definitely is. I, I would it's interesting like we like at QC we spent a lot of time working with local employers like 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 around here to make sure that they really make sure that they really un, un, understood that and I think that we had had some success in that in terms of in terms of making that work like we we Work very very closely with employers and had them in a, in, a, in a lot. And actually, we we developed a skills framework at Canusi, which is now even more robust and completely embedded in the curriculum due to Ian and some of the work that he that he that he's done there. But we actually co-created that with local employers and also the local business forum, the Kangorn Business Forum, and and the Inverness Business Forum as well. So that so that so that our our skills framework, you know, was was very very relevant to not just national employers but also local employers making making that work. Uh, and I think the special part about it was is we had a group of kids. Like working on it as well. So when so one of the one of the skills that that we all agreed was important was you know a reasonable level of literacy and numeracy. But we had kids then unpicking what that actually might mean yeah. around that, and employers unpicking what that might mean. Um, and then we did some kind of clever things with that as well. So that um, like we did a we did a little project where like with the sixth year kids we would get them onto like LinkedIn profiles, and then as the, as a school you know we would endorse them for one of the ten skills that came up with that as well. So they actually had this digital. This, this, this digital portfolio they could they could share and they could do with an employer before. So yeah, we did lots of it, lots of it, lots of interesting stuff like that. Some some of, some of which some of which continues, um, and 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 most of which has been built on and is now now a lot better certainly than, than, when, than when I was there. I just had a couple more things really I wanted to ask you about, um, so I'll rattle through those quite quickly. But uh, looking at topical issues again, uh, one of the big sort of talking points um, since everything happened here with COVID-19 uh, in Scotland certainly has been qualifications and what's going to happen now that exams have been cancelled uh, it was the 19th of March uh, so we're a good few weeks on from then we're, we're talking to, uh, on Wednesday the 29th of April um, there's been I think it, I mean, there's been a lot of 
that you've talked about, I think what it boils down to is people are concerned about equity, about making sure that there are no kids who are disadvantaged by the situation. How do you think it's been handled? How do you think it will pan out over the, the coming months? You've got an interesting perspective as someone who's been a head teacher, but is now a bit more outside it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, have, I, mean, I have to say, you know, there's, there's obviously been, been a bit of criticism, like with the way that things have been handled, but, but I, I actually genuinely think it's been handled handled well like 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 really i i i have got a and i got a bit of a i got a bit of a backlash on twitter with this but i was very very defensive and i'm very very defensive at the moment of, of the government the sqa the SCQF, education scotland i mean i really i really do think they're doing a fantastic job in very very difficult 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 circumstances and um and i actually wish that people would be a little bit more empathetic about that they're dealing with a lot as well in terms of making that work i think that the i think that they're that there is there is that kind of concern maybe about equity and maybe about some kids missing out. But but what I would say, and I think that Scotland is very good about this, and I think it's been designed, is that the the system in Scotland, because of the way that we are, the system looks after children, like it 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 it, it, it nurtures children in terms of you know in, in terms of the support it gives in school, and in term, and in terms of you know the drastic changes to the qualification structure that have happened you know this year around that. So. So I guess my kind of advice or reassurance, particularly to parents, I think that schools kind of know this already, is that the system will look after the kids like it, like it really will. In fact, the kids that are the kids that are graduating this year, the kids that are that, that are, that are in S6, m- many many of them will will probably you come out of this in an even more positive situation as they move on to university and they move on to employability because the system will look after them and they and they will empathise you know around, around around that as well. Some of the you know some of the the, the more challenging bits, I guess, might be around like a child that's an S four that's that's moving into into, into S five. Yeah. What does you know what, what does that look like? But but in terms of the immediate, you know, let's hope that this thing is kind of immediate and it's kind of like medium term. Even though we might have these kind of like flash flash points, the, the children that I think are the most concerned are the ones that are in S six and moving forward or about to leave school. The, the system will, will look after them and they will they will be they will be fine. Mm-hmm. I guess the kids, there's been a concern around some kids who might, you know, there's obviously teacher professional judgment is so central to how things are being handled just now. Um, but then there's a fear that through a, a statistical exercise, some of those kids may, be, may not get the mark that their teachers, yeah. or the grade that their teachers think they deserve. Um, yeah. What do you say to that? So I think, again, again I think it's an, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think... I think that the point really of the statistical exercise would would, would be to flag up some uh, would be to flag up opportunity for some type of qual- for some type of quality assurance and I, and, I, and I'll say something now which which some people won't be very happy with is that we use the we use the term professional judgment a lot um, yet 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 sometimes people aren't very professional about about about, about things and I don't and I don't mean that in a you know in a in a, in a, in a derogatory way but what what I, what I mean is that you know um, you know we do have some teachers un, un, unfortunately that that use their professional judgment. But because they never talk to other teachers in their school or other teachers in other schools around that, it is just their professional judgment. It's yeah. not the judgment of the profession that they're that they're bringing forward. Um, and and I think that that's a that's a really really important point. And that's why we have quality assurance. And that's why we have you know statistical analysis, which might develop some orange or red flags for a bit of further analysis around around that as well. And I guess the kind of the message ar- ar- around that is then again. You know, as schools start to go back and head teachers start to lead, lead, lead their lead, lead their schools, how do you how do you develop that collaborative professionalism within like within like within within your, within your school? You know, and it you know it reminds me of something that I talk a lot about. You know, you know, which is really a very basic school improvement model around you know look, look, looking looking inwards, looking outwards, and look, looking looking forwards. You know, most teachers are good at looking inwards. <laughs> you know, but it's about looking outwards, and by outwards we don't you know we don't just mean I don't just mean in the school. We also mean to other departments and make that work as well. And then that looking forwards bit about 
what could you know what could the future look like? What my assessment look like? How am I how am I how am I moving how am I moving things on? And just one last question on this: We we had a story yesterday where um, the, again my colleague Emma Seath had spoken to uh, Seamus Searson, the general secretary of the Scottish Secondary Teachers Association, and he was essentially saying that there's so much uncertainty, um, so much pressure on students, on teachers, on the system just now. Uh, we don't know when schools are going to return. We don't know when there will be, you know, possibly a second lockdown. Um, so his view was that we should just bite the bullet now and say there won't be any exams next year either. I mean, do you think it's, what do you think of that? Is it too early to call that? Is that I think it's possibly too early to like to, to call that at, at this stage. But what, but what of course, the, the, the advantage that we've got now at this stage in terms of planning for next year is at least we can start thinking about this. This time last year, this wasn't even on our radar. We weren't yeah. thinking about this before. And that's why you know people have scrambled around to make this happen. And that's why I think actually people have done a very, very good job. So I think starting to think about it is, a, is the useful thing. We've also got to remember, of course, that the SQA plan, at least a year in advance, like around, around these things. So, so there are already fairly robust plans ahead you know, for the 2021 you know, e e e exam diet and, and, making, and making that work. But yeah, I think, I think at this stage... Having the sense of contingency planning is not a, you know, is not a, you know, it's not, it's not a bad idea. But I think it's, I think it's too early to make that, to make that call. What, um, what I think would be sensible would be to set some very, very clear timelines as to when that call will be made, to give people plenty of notice, uh, uh, you know, around that as well. I mean, part of this as well is also a bit of a motivation issue. You know, you know, we've got, um, you know, we've, we, you know, we've got kids that are, that that now have just gone back to school and they're learning in a distance, in a distance online, and they're working towards something. If, if we don't know what they're working towards, like whether that's whether that's an exam or whether it's an assessment or a piece of a piece, piece of coursework, then actually that puts actually additional pressure on schools and school staff to make that to make it work as well. And just going back as well to digital learning, and you had going back quite a number of years, you had a very national perspective on, on things, and you were leading and driving things in Scotland. Certainly, at that stage, I think was seen as being at the forefront internationally. We had. Uh, uh, it's quite funny I've been watching obviously a lot of people are watching Netflix a lot just now and the series that my wife and I are watching is called uh, my wife's a teacher is Glow uh, it's about uh, female professional wrestlers in the 1980s and she's, she truly likes it but she says she just can't help thinking about you know, work when she watches it because when Glow comes up on the screen and makes her think of uh, you know, digital learning and so forth but um, Glow is something for those who don't know I mean we're Going way back, it's been around a long time, and it was called the school's intranet for Scotland at one point. And uh, so it's been around a long time, and it's quite funny to see people discover it now as if it's this brand new thing. But um, anyway, so all of that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, going back maybe ten years or more, Scotland really seemed at the forefront of things. Have we, you know, have we kept up that momentum in Scotland? Are we still in a good place with with um, embracing this new digital world of education? So, well, so first of all, you've reminded me of a funny story. So originally, it was called, <laughs> so originally it was called Spark, and then it was called the Scottish School of Digital Internet, and then it became Glow. But of course, nobody at the time had Googled Glow to see what it was. So nobody at the time realised that that Glow also stood for Glamorous Ladies of Wrestling. You know, even <laughs> when it when it when it came out, so that's a that's a that's a funny moment, which uh, which we certainly in our team found incredibly amusing, um, and. Um, yeah, and and I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I, in, in, in my in my mind, definitely, ten years ago, Scotland was at the forefront of digital learning and teaching and approaches to engagement in class. So we had a we had a lot of investment around you know computer games in school, which was really about engaging experiences. A lot of 
a lot of things about a lot of early work around kind of coding, early work around around you know ro robotics, um, early work around like the, the the like glow and the digital network and collecting teachers. Some of the first professional communities in the world for deputy head teachers, you know, and head teachers they were part of it. Even even like mass even mass government training schemes like masterclass and there were there were big challenges with that doing it doing it on a scale but it was the right thing to do at the time we you know, we just you know there were challenges of course going back even further than that say 15 15 years ago you know the the biggest challenge was of course is the technology technology didn't work you know people 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 adopted technology because they were people like me that were enthusiastic about it you know and, and they were and they were very very happy you know on a on a thursday evening to kind of get that video working or they would put they would perceive of it the the advantage that we've got now is that in most cases the technology does work you know and um and also the tools have got easier to use they've got a lot more of like a low skills threshold um I, I i think that i think if i'm being honest that scotland has lost the pace a little bit with digital with digital learning and teaching um i think it's 100 you know got the potential to catch up with this and actually overtake and lead the world again and i and i really hope that one of the genuinely hope that one of the good things about the good thing that comes from this is that is that we we reposition ourselves as a small nation you know, as a, as as a place where where we where we get things done by by by, net, by networking people and and developing developing the tools and and I would and I and I would love to see um, education Scotland the Scottish government thinking deeply about that in terms of planning plan like planning ahead because I think not only would that be incredibly good for Scottish learners you know but it would be also helpful for other situations like this that might come out you know in in the, in the future. And just finally, there's a couple of questions that we ask all our guests on the podcast. The, the first of which is maybe a two-parter for you, so. What essentially makes a good teacher? What's the most essential quality? And I guess the supplementary is the same question for head teachers. Yeah, so I think so. I think for for for, for me, it's it, you've got to you've got to like you've got to like working with kids. You know, you've got to like you. And um, it, for me, for me, teaching is all about is all about people. You know, I like I mentioned already, I was a, like a like a like a geography teacher. I don't think it would have mattered if I was a biology teacher or a PE teacher or any like any any of these things. I like I like working with kids, and I like. I like helping kids and then and then you know and I like seeing I genuinely like seeing children grow like 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 around that and um and it's just as a teacher just taking every single moment that you can to invest in a, in a child even if you think at the time you're having no impact at all like going back to the give covid the boot thing i've been overwhelmed by the amount of former pupils that i've taught for 20 years that are throwing boots around their garden in bristol you know and doing these things and, pull, and pulling that together and, and that you know and that's because you would like to think that in that lesson when you were doing it is that you had a bit of an impact on that or you spoke to them in the corridor or you remembered that fact about them and you, and you, and you brought that up. And then I guess, like as a, as a head teacher, that's still incredibly important, but you, you extend that to helping staff and developing staff. There's nothing more, there's nothing more privileged, I think, as a head teacher than appointing a member of staff and developing a member of staff and bringing them on. And indeed, one of the things that Ian Adamson, the head teacher at Canucci and I talk about a lot, is that, is that actually we've, we've caused him a, a, a problem. And the reason we've caused him a, a problem is that there were hardly any promotions out of Canusi, you know, five or six years ago. You know, yeah, you know, in the, in the last in the last 80, 18 months, you know, we've had so many promotions going out of the school to senior management positions and to you know into principal principal teacher positions. But that's because we invested in the staff and we brought those staff on, and they were able to then share that philosophy with with, with other people. So it's not a complete disaster because we've been thinking very heavily about it, and we've always had that kind of succession plan in head because that was our. One of our aims, like when we when 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 we, when we set out, it's a it's a, it's a sign of success. So for me, it's about developing people, whether it's kids, staff, community, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and just finally, uh, we ask again. This is something we ask everyone. Do you have a favourite fi fictional teacher? Yeah. So I think so. It's, so it's interesting, actually. So so I think my 
my favorite fictional teacher would be um, like from the Dead Poet Society. Probably, oh, yeah. Probably. yeah. I actually, I actually chose him as well when we did our very first podcast with with Emma. When we just sort of had a bit of a chat with each other, and uh, I said I wasn't necessarily. I said at the end I wasn't necessarily convinced he was a great teacher in all regards. But uh, um, it'd be interesting to hear your take on it. Well, so my, my take on it is, and I and I'm and I'm kind of I'm paraphrasing here because I've I've not watched the film for a while, but I I I remember that he had um, well two phrases, wasn't it? Seize the day was a yeah was a, was yeah. A, was a, yeah. One that I think I love the most, and it was something like um, "Make your life extraordinary." You know, that just that kind of motivational message that that that, that, that came out of there. And, and he was like a motive. He was a motivational guy. He was um, he was a bit of a maverick, you know, in, in in many ways, pushing the boundaries of the system, but really bringing the best out of you know young you know young people in a really kind of emotive way. But if I was to to take that a stage further, I was actually kind of thinking, well. Maybe, maybe it would be. Maybe my fictional teacher would actually be, you know, Robin Williams, like rather than like John John Keating, you know. And obviously, yeah. Robin has sadly passed away. Because if I think about some of the different characters that he played over the years, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, she was a yeah. great role model. She was a great teacher in a different way in that kind of informal setting. Or Chatter, <laughs> you know, when he when he's in yeah. the hospital, when he's developing, he's developing people, he's making them smile, he's he's doing that, and it kind of all links back to me to almost where we started this conversation of that feels very very human. Yeah. Around that, you know, and and all of those characters that he played, and it, it, he helped the kids and the staff feel very, very human. And because they felt very human, they felt good about themselves. And because they felt good about themselves, they engaged with the learning and they engaged with the task. And that, for me, is the powerful, the powerful thing. What I saw as potentially one downside of John Keating was that uh, maybe the 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 image it perpetuated of teachers that the, the the ideal teacher is you know inspiring and exuberant and. Um, I mean, what maybe gets lost in that is that sometimes a lot of great teachers are, are quiet characters and quite introspective, yeah. you know. So um, yeah. I, I wondered if there was a, an issue with that. They just propagated this yeah. one vision of what a great teacher was, where so there's actually, you know. And of, course, and of course, it's a great point. And of course, the the the, the most so at, at, at KDC, we uh, like we used to have an informal recruitment policy, which was let's hire different. Quirky people. That's what we, that's what we used to do. Um, don't tell the Highland Council that. Probably won't appear <laughs> in the job description. But what we really, really wanted is we wanted a good mix of people, a good mix of different characters, people that were obviously committed to working with children, committed to the outdoors, committed to digital learning. But we wanted people to be very, very different and passionate. And again, Ian and I, head teacher at Kings, we've had lots of conversations over the years around the, the challenge that that created was is if you hire passionate people. They can rub each other up the wrong way. So, 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 like, I honestly think that. Can you see? You know, we we did have and we have now got some of the best staff, like in the whole of Scotland. We, you know, we we purposely recruited from all over the UK to bring to bring these together, and they're, they're they're passionate staff. And of course, if you've got passionate staff, you then, as a leader and a manager, have to get good at managing passionate people and leading and leading passionate people. And I don't think we think about that enough. Like when we suddenly bring, you know, these uh, you know, these these interesting people, like 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 into schools, it's a leadership quality uh, as well. That seems a great point to end on. So thanks very much for being so generous with your time, um, especially when we're all facing all sorts of unexpected challenges and demands on our on our time, uh, you know, just now with everything that's going on. So it's been great, really interesting talking to you. Thanks again. Thanks.